0: All right. Welcome everyone. Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we're in for a treat, especially if you have companions, pets. And we're going to be talking with Dr. Karen Becker, who's been with our site. How many years now, Karen? At least a dozen, maybe more, 15? Four,
1: 14.
0: Okay. 14. Four. That was close. I Plus? said, maybe a dozen, maybe 15. So, so I was I was, in the window. I should have looked before, but it just going by memory. So, um, you're, in my view, one of the, probably the best uh, holistic vet out there in the world. And I'm so glad that you're connected with us and you run the, our pet site. But we haven't talked for a while. We used to share the same location in the Northwest suburbs of Chicago, or you were Southwest, I was Northwest, and we used to see it regularly, but we'd hardly ever seen her because you're in Arizona, I'm in Florida, and we intersect once every few years or less. Yes. <laughs> But it's it's time for an update and um, we're going to learn some good stuff. I think the first one is that everyone, it is hard to not be overwhelmed and notice the artwork behind you. Mm -hmm. And that's not just any special artwork. Those are the cremated remains of your favorite pets. So why don't you expand on this and Mm -hmm. and. I, you know tell us what that's all about and what the what the minerals represent and and how if someone is interested in this, which is a, yes. a pretty novel way to remember your loved ones. I think um, I don't know you probably you have some I, I love you because you have such deep philosophical views on so many things and uh, my view of pets you know is somewhat limited, but one of their best best values is to teach us how to grieve.
1: Hmm. Animals serve so many valuable purposes, yeah. Joe, but.
0: Yeah. Cause they're, they're going to pass
1: away before we are. And they're, they, the they are
0: because there's the example right behind you.
1: Yes. Yeah. What you see behind me, uh, all of my babies are my favorite babies. Some of them I cremated and some of them I buried the animals that I cremated sit in urns. And I when I moved from Chicago to Arizona, I moved into a tiny house. And when I moved into a tiny house, I didn't want a shelf of just urns for a bunch of reasons. And so I didn't, I didn't, of course, they're sacred to me. I can put them on my nightstand, but I didn't know what to do. I didn't know, I didn't know where to put my babies because I'm in this really tiny space. And at that moment, a company called Ever After Art contacted me and said, we are, doing a brand new technique where you send us a tablespoon of your, your dog or cat's cremated remains, and they'll stain them for mineral content and then take an electron microscopy picture. And then they send you back a high Mm -hmm. res JPEG. That's basically a photo of the minerals in your animal's body. And it um, the first one I got back was so breathtaking. Of course, I just cried because our animals are as beautiful microscopically as they are macroscopically. And so being able to see and have my babies on the wall behind me is not only very meaningful, but they're just gorgeous. It's also fascinating. You can't see, but Isabel, it was a Rottweiler I rescued at seven years of age and she was fed kibble.
0: Now who was seven? Sorry. You, you were her,
1: her, she was seven. <laughs> okay. She was seven and she was fed fast food her mm-hmm. whole life. And if you could see her, her mineral composition, she's um, she's not as vite and bright and vibrant. She doesn't have uh, as much nutritional diversity stored in her bones. Her bank of minerals was not nearly as robust or diverse as, let's say, uh, this, this yellow baby down here. You can't see the whole thing. This is Crosno. And Crosno was my 20-year-old kitty. He just passed away six months ago. He was raw, fresh fed from the time that I found him at six weeks of age. And wow. he's got this diverse, gorgeous profile of minerals that he banked that so it's it's interesting that you can actually get a hint of an animal's health and wellness status by looking at mineral composition even in death so it's ever after art and um they do a beautiful job of helping you see vividly up front and every day, the beautiful aspects that our animals continue to give us and the lessons that they continue to teach us. And yes, animals are amazing at connecting us to our higher purpose, grounding us. They love us unconditionally. They role model unconditional love. The only animal, the only creature in the whole world that will be fired up when you come back from getting the mail or when you, if you come home six hours late from work, your dog will still jump up on you and be totally fired up that you're home. He doesn't ask any questions. He doesn't pout that you're late. He just is genuinely overwhelmingly happy to see you. And that is rare to get that from a best friend, a spouse, a mate, a partner, family members, humans fail each other and animals uh, rarely fail us. Um, If there's a break in the relationship, it's usually human induced most of the time. So yes, that's the background of my babies.
0: All right, well, thanks for that explanation. And uh, for those who are interested, maybe you can give us some information where we can do that. And I'm assuming from the logistic perspective, it, it has to be bones or can you use other tissue minerals? No, you just
1: crematory? it's it's whatever the crematory sends back to you. You have to open the okay. urn. That's that's one of the hardest parts is um emotionally is opening your beloved's urn. And you you just they set they send a kit and there's a little container with a scoop, and you take a tablespoon out and that's it. Perfect. So whatever yeah. is in your urn is what you submit.
0: So you can do this for loved ones too. Like my my dad was cremated, and I still have his his uh his urn his ashes.
1: I I don't know about humans. I well just, it's the
0: same I thing, just, right? Yeah, tissue, of, tissue. of course,
1: of course it is. I <laughs> I I I'm certain that you could do it. I don't think that they uh, will market for humans, but. <laughs> I agree with you. It would be fascinating to see humans in terms of mineral. You know, humans and animals have a lot in common, but here's a big difference, Dr. Marcola. In North America, the average human eat about 51% ultra processed food a day, about half of their calories are coming from ultra processed food. But in the animal space, it's actually much worse. Dogs and cats eat a minimum of 85% ultra processed foods from birth till death. So actually humans of course are nutritionally deprived, but on top of animals having to eat dog food or cat food their whole life, Yes, those foods are minerally fortified. That's a big difference. There's a multivitamin in dog and, in every bite of dog and cat food, synthetic multivitamin. But there's also all these tag along unwanted byproducts included in pet foods like advanced glycation end products, mycotoxins, glyphosate. There's all of these other unwanted contaminants that impact health and well-being even on a microscopic level as well. So, humans and animals do have a lot of nutritional woes in common.
0: Yes, indeed, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to discuss that with you uh, to review what I perceive as some major atrocities. You know, I mean, it's a crime against humanity what they did with COVID and the vaccines and the jabs and the lockdowns and the masking, social distancing. But you know, it's almost on a comparable level, especially if a great affinity for pets. What they are do have done and are continuing to do in the pet world and most, I would say the vast majority of people are absolutely unaware of this. It's just, it really is shocking that they can get away with it, but they pulled it off. They really have, in, in many ways, even more effectively than in human nutrition. And uh, you, you had mentioned the ages are in the pet foods and uh, I'm sure they are, advanced and oh. problems, but, but they're loaded with linoleic acid, I am certain. And this linoleic acid elevation that is 23 times more potent than sugar at producing these ages. So yes, they're in the food, but the food they're feeding them is going to exponentially increase the ages and the ALEs, the advanced lip oxidation end products, which are yeah. you know, s- these catalysts for uh, causing this incredible amount of excess oxidative stress in the body and just really accelerating our destruction towards a premature death. And, and pretty much almost every single Degenerative disease that we encounter, and in pets, you know, it's cancer. It's a big one, and it, and so many of these, and we'll talk about that too. But so many of these pets are dropping from cancer. And they don't have to. They don't have to if you if you give them the right food. So let's talk about let's start down the road of, you know, what the 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 food that almost everyone is feeding their pets, and and, and you know, mostly out of ignorance. I think it's they certainly mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So go go, give us a deep dive on the and I think it's a conspiracy to in collusion with the veterinarians other than veterinarians like you that go along with this many of them unknowingly but most many, many of them know this and they still agree with it so it's it's I, it's just a shocking crime
1: it's it is shocking but joe i would actually argue that at least in my profession kids go into vet school, just like kids go into medical school mm-hmm. and in veterinary school, they are indoctrinated. They, they, Brainwash. if you, you break, it is, it is. If you go in with the foundation of nutrition, you have something to balance it with. And that was thankfully for me, that was my situation. My parents are wildly proactive. I grew up, my grandma Shaw taught me how to grow and juice wheatgrass. When I was 12, my parents my mama made three homemade, organic, garden-fresh meals a day. We never had soda. We never had white bread. But I believe even a 1971 baby, I was the exception. So I went to vet school understanding the power of food. That is not true of my of my peers. So what happens is during veterinary school, you can track large or small animal. Actually, large animal veterinarians have a much more robust knowledge of how to nourish animals because they're growing animals for food production. So they understand how much protein, how much fat, they understand how to grow animals quickly for slaughter, for consumption. So large animal veterinarians actually have a much better grasp on how to construct diets that are necessary, what mineral and vitamin deficiencies look like. If I was a cow or pig vet, I would have graduated knowing more about those types of nutritional details for small animal veterinarians. Like myself, I didn't even have an independent board certified veterinary nutritionist teach my nutrition class. I had a rep from the ultra processed pet food diet <laughs> company teach my nutrition class. Joe, that's the equivalent of having a drug rep teach your pharmacology class. Like there's Absolutely. a serious Same conflict thing. of it serious conflict of interest. Not to mention, every single veterinary school in the world has a professional relationship with one of the major pet food companies that supplies the hospital and university with not just foods for their, for the animals in the clinic, but they supply veterinary students, pet foods, free pet foods. So when I brought Gemini to veterinary school, Waltham was the sponsor at Iowa state school of veterinary medicine. And I had the opportunity to give Gemini free Waltham food. This is also when I started making homemade food for my dog. And that's a whole different story. But Joe, that being said, I think the biggest overwhelming aspect is that veterinarians are still the only health and wellness professionals that graduate with doctorate degrees that still truly believe. And I know you're thinking, you know, they know in their hearts that, you know, oh, we shouldn't be doing this, but we are. I really would argue that they graduate thinking I got this laminated book. And when I have liver disease, I'll prescribe a liver diet. And when I have kidney disease, I'll prescribe this ultra processed kidney diet. It's a little bit like being indoctrinated that, that, Baby formula is better than breast milk, and but you have to go on to then construct baby formula. Pet food really is a lot like baby formula. It has to have all the protein, all the fat, all the minerals, all the vitamins in it so that every single meal you're feeding a complete and balanced nutritional meal. The problem is, Joe, that is not how any animal has ever eaten or consumed food ever in the history of ever. No dog or cat, just in the last hundred years is when the ultra processed pet food industry has come about. And that is- Let's go yeah. on, Let's
0: into the history, because there's so many parallels with human nutrition, because it, it, they captured the medical schools in 1910 with the uh, introduction of the Flexner Report, catalyzed by Rockefeller and uh, Carnegie. And the medical school uh, curriculum was never the same after that. And to this day, it remains the same. You know, essentially... Uh, natural therapies and nutrition was excised from the cu- curriculum. So, how did they capture the the veterinary industry? And what when did it occur? Is it a hundred years ago or, or longer?
1: So, in nineteen forty five, Purina made rice and wheat checks with mm-hmm. this brand new machine called an extruder and it was in 1951 that their pet division said hey can we borrow the extruder mm. to extrude the very first bag of purina dog chow 1951 uh. and they borrowed it from the human food extrusion line and what they realized is oh my gosh this extrudes a all-in-one ready-to-eat store it in the pantry, dump it in the bowl from birth till death. All you have to do is feed this little brown crunchy ball. We'll add a synthetic, we'll take everything left over from the human food industry that can't be fed to humans. We'll add a synthetic multivitamin and mineral to it. We'll extrude it at high temperatures and then we'll package it and sell it as complete and balanced nutrition. That was the beginning of the decline of overall health and well-being for companion animals.
0: So it was only about 50 years ago.
1: I mean now canned foods, dog, dog food and, Cat food came in canned foods prior to that. And then actually, that was probably healthier. Prior to that. Yeah, exactly. However, so originally, James Spratt in about 1895 in England, he was a lightning rod salesman, a US salesman went to. London and found that ships were dumping hardtack, which is the sailor leftover moldy food for sailors on the docks and that dogs, stray dogs were coming to eat it. So he, James Fred had this brilliant, he was an entrepreneur. He's like, oh my gosh, there's those dogs eating that leftover human food. Maybe I could make a dog food that looks like this. So he started Sprat's cakes, which is actually the claim to fame is the original dog food, which is a human selling an easy product for convenience. It's like Betty Crocker cakes. Don't make homemade cake. Just buy a cake mix. Don't have to feed your dog leftovers. Farmers don't have to throw scraps. You don't have to worry about sharing human food with your dog. You just buy your dog his own set of food. And that original formula was wheat flour, leftover fat, large salt and water. And then they baked it. The problem was it became moldy and rancid. So mycotoxins, Dr. Mm-hmm. Mercola were a huge issue all throughout the early pet foods from early, you know, late 1800s, early 1900s, animals kept dying of nutritional deficiencies, as you you can imagine. So kitties are obligate carnivores and dogs need some meat protein. I would argue that they're scavenging carnivores. They need a lot of meat protein. And because there was so little amino acids in those original baked dog foods, animals, dogs and cats still died of nutritional deficiencies quite regularly. Then Mm -hmm. came canned food and canned food came about very interestingly because After a horse, with the invention of the car, we had 60,000 horses that no longer provided transportation. And there again, humans capitalized on then selling horse meat as dog food. And that was a canned option for, for dog foods. Those early canned products for dogs and cats were primarily horse meat. When there was a metal ration during World War II, they said no more, that we will not be using any cans for pet food. And that is when Purina took advantage of, okay, if we if we can't provide mm. canned foods and baked foods become moldy, what can we do? We will use an extruder. And that really was the beginning of high heat temperatures. Now, remember, by that time, Purina was already adding in the synthetic vitamins and minerals that they knew were required, like calcium to make strong bones. Those basic Minerals that are needed to sustain life. Purina was already adding them in. But then this is where it gets a little dubious where marketing claims, including nutritionally complete and balanced, pet parents started believing that. And during that time, women were primarily at home, the ones making food, and they were in charge of feeding whatever dog or cat may be around the house or inside, outside of the house. And buying dog food became one way to minimize the workload in the house. So it was just convenience, like oftentimes fast Mm -hmm. food is. And from that point going forward, then marketing expanded to this is all you ever need to feed your dog or cat. All you have to do is buy this convenient prepackaged food. You feed it from birth to death and your animal will thrive because it's everything that they need. So that was the start of the misconceptions. But because veterinarians are indoctrined to believe, hey, this is scientifically formulated. This is all animals need. They are parroting that misinformation to worldwide pet parents who are also believing it. Now, what we have seen, thank goodness, is in the last 35 years, common sense start to rise up and people are saying, wait a minute, it doesn't seem logical to me at all that we should be feeding Animals a little brown crunchy ball from birth to death, any more than you and I should be eating meal replacement bars. Or total cereal is actually the best example. Total cereal is an extruded food with a synthetic multivitamin and mineral. And when you read the site of total cereal, it says 100% of all the RDA of everything needed. Just imagine feeding your kid total cereal from birth to death. It's the equivalent of dog or cat food. So in the last 30 years in modernized countries, there's been an awakening of people saying, I believe my animal needs more. And there have been a small but growing handfuls of veterinarians like myself who were raised knowing that animals could not solely exist on dog or cat food. My my parents did buy ultra processed food for all of our family dogs, but my mother always topped off with whatever she was chopping in the kitchen all of our animals always got leftovers. And I do believe that that's one of the reasons that my dog that ate ultra processed food, my family dog, Sooty, lived to almost 20. He lived to 19 eating really bad ultra processed food. But the trade-off was, was, he was supplemented with every day, with all my mama's amazing leftovers. And now when we're talking leftovers, we're talking low glycemic, high roughage, good carbs. We're talking the tops and bottoms of broccoli. We're talking the the bottom stems of mushrooms, which we know now have more fiber and beta-glucans than the cap. So my mama was inadvertently sharing all these goodies with our family animals that I firmly believe extended their lives. In addition to my mother practicing intermittent fasting with our dogs, in addition to my mom walking our dogs five miles a day. So What I have learned in my 25 years of being a veterinarian is that nutrition is the foundation of health, no doubt, but it's not the only thing that matters. Movement, fresh air, detoxification, and- is and stress management. Stress meaning chemical stress, emotional stress, physical stress, all of those things together are what either dictate health span and a long lifespan or the beginning of chronic degenerative disease midlife, which is what we typically see in veterinary medicine. Cancer, obesity, diabetes, organ failure, autoimmune disease, allergies, all of them are expected in the exam room. And that's a and that's a shame.
0: Yeah, that's just like it is in, with humans. Those variables are equally important. And it's not just about the diet, although the diet is one of the most important. So what is your best estimate uh, as to the decrease in lifespan and increase in morbidity uh, as a result of the adoption of these convenience foods for pets that were optimized to create massive amount of profits for the companies producing them uh, and had nothing, absolutely nothing to do with the health of the pets?
1: Well, let me let me give you two examples. First of all, I also have that, I have, have that obsessive question. And as a proactive wellness veterinarian, I'm obsessed with the science of how and why animals either die young, Mm
0: -hmm. even
1: with genetic predispositions, we all have genetic predispositions, Mm -hmm. but just like uh, the hip dysplasia set of genes that can be expressed or don't have to be expressed. Uh, I did some DNA testing on my own dog. He's got basically the equivalent of the genes for degenerative issues in his eyes. It's called progressive retinal atrophy in dogs and humans. It would be similar to, um, macular degeneration, let's say. And so even though my dog has those D the, the DNA for that, I am putting food into action and he's 16 years old and he's not expressed that DNA. I'm also super interested in how you up and down regulate your dog and cat's epigenome to either quiet down genetics that you don't want expressed, Or if you do nothing, if you are not intentionally working on creating health, you are inadvertently allowing your animal's health to slip away because by just doing nothing, your animals will degenerate and almost always begin expressing whatever DNA is lurking and there's going to come out midlife. So I do believe that um, my desire to want to know why and how animals live longer, that was actually behind why we wrote the Forever Dog book. My co-writer is obsessed with the oldest dogs in the world, and I'm obsessed with the science of why. So Rodney Abib went out and found the oldest dogs, verified oldest dogs in the world, and went and interviewed all of their owners around the world about what those owners did and didn't do. And Dr. Mercola, it's as much what owners didn't do as what they did do that ultimately created health. All of the longest-lived dogs owners that we interviewed Some of the Bushki, 28 years old, 27 year old, uh, 30 year old Maggie from Australia. Every single one of these dogs had some key variables in common. They all move their bodies every day. They all were allowed to make choices. They were able to go outside and sniff and to have direct sunshine, ground themselves. They had access to fresh food every day. These animals had an entirely different set of variables that allowed them to have all the resources they need for appropriate detoxification as well as this robust nutrient intake from a whole variety of different foods over their lifetime so then we took all that information to the top longevity scientists around the world and we had those longevity specialists geneticists and doctors human specialists reverse engineer these oldest dogs and that's what we put together in our book the forever dog just recently we learned that there's a 30 year old dog in portugal So to your point of what are the variables, uh, when Rodney found out that there was a 30-year-old dog in Portugal, we didn't know if it was true or not. We hear, you know, social media is full of this and that. But January, around January 1st, the Guinness Book of World Records verified through actually some DNA testing. They got the original veterinary rabies certificate from 1992. They talked to the Portuguese Veterinary Medical Association. They talked to this man's neighbors and they actually crowned a new Winner of the oldest dog of the world title to Bobby, who lives in Portugal. So, we tracked down Bobby's dad, Leonel, and we invited ourselves over to interview him. And Dr. Marcola, exactly the variables that you would anticipate for human longevity, health, and well-being are exactly in place for why Bobby lives lives and is still living at 31 years of age. How can a dog be over double his lifespan? Well, number one, he's never eaten one bite of commercially available dog food in his life. His dad, Lionel, and his family have cooked and shared their own food with their dog since birth. Bobby was born in the woodshed in the back of the house. And uh, from that time, there's this huge three-acre garden in the front of their house. The family grows about 75% of their own food. They raise chickens and rabbits for their protein. During the winter, when they can't, there's this beautiful local farmer's market where they're buying all fresh, non-chemically treated produce. So they have this amazing variety of fresh fruits and veggies that are going into Bobby's body every day. He's got access to access to a garden to which he self-forages every day. He goes on walkabouts in the woods every day, and there is no pesticide chemical ac- application in or around the house. In addition to his incredibly stress-free life, there's clean air clean soil and he lives this almost magical life of being able to make choices about what he wants to do on a daily basis that's basically a blue zone dog dr mercola he's got a rich social life he has natural movement every day he's eating a mediterranean diet he basically is a blue zone dog so i think that that combination of healthy natural movement a rich social life and an amazing diet is are probably the key factors for extending health and well-being in our pets
0: So it sounds like my chickens and (laughs) geese—they've got magical environment to grow and stay healthy. But but I still didn't get. I love the beautiful description, but you didn't really answer the question as to what percentage reduction are you you think is uh, present as a result of adopting the this commercial convenience food. It it seems like it's fifty percent. Yeah, and,
1: like, and you and there's no there's no way, sadly, to qualify that. Yeah, I wish but, I could. Ta- I wish get, I could your, tell you.
0: Your opinion is valid. Yeah. you're in the field. You're in the I, trenches. I do you see believe, this every day.
1: I do believe that owners that raise their dogs, like Bobby was raised, owners that are cognizant of all of the variables that are necessary for well being. Absolutely. Those dogs not only may have a potentially longer lifespan, but I think more importantly, they have a better health span. They are not degenerating midlife from preventable degenerative diseases. Their bodies are moving along, not degenerating because their owners are cognizant of the steps that they need to take to intentionally create health and well-being. So I would say that if I had to guess... I would say that at least 50% of the degenerative diseases that we're seeing today are directly related to lifestyle. And actually, if we include all of the other aspects of lifestyle, research says that it's about an 80-20 split, Joe, that 80% of degenerative diseases in dogs and cats are related to genetics that cannot be changed. We can't change our pet's DNA, but we can modulate their environment around it Mm -hmm. to whether up or down regulate expression. 80% Joe is related to lifestyle and diet, 80% of well being. So if you are making good choices, then you will have a better outcome. If God forbid, and this is also another reason why I wrote the book after 20 years in the exam room, I am so heartbroken from hearing my clients say, if I, if I only would have had this information before, if I would have known that I should have been feeding my dog healthy, organic, fresher foods. I didn't know my, my vet told me just to feed ultra processed food. I just followed my vet's advice, but this is where, this is exactly why you set up a pet site. You emailed me in 2009 and said, hey, listen, you have the exact same views I do about health and well-being, that animals, including human mammals, we need unadulterated, fresh, chemical-free whole foods for health and wellness. And obviously you believe that, would you come and be a consultant? And that is exactly how our relationship got started is because you and I align on how mammalian physiology should be nourished. Now, as a wildlife biologist, my degree before I became a veterinarian, I'm a big believer in species appropriate foods. That's the second issue, Dr. Mercola, with pet foods is that right now, the pet food industry, first of all, you have to keep in mind the step number one of the biggest issue of the pet food industry is we got a serious quality control issue. All of the raw materials going into pet foods show are, have failed human food inspection, which means everything in North America, foods come in and thank goodness we live in a modernized country, country that has food inspection services, yay. USDA food that passes inspection goes into the human food market. Everything that fails inspection goes into animal feed, including dog and cat food. So unless your pet food is labeled made with human grade ingredients, it is made from rendered USDA inspected and failed Raw materials. Now, the food failed for a reason. Maybe mycotoxins could be heavy metals. You're never going to know how the raw materials got into your pet's pet food. But the quality control is issue number one. The second issue, Joe, is species appropriateness, which means right now the pet food industry is trying to convince pet owners that dogs are vegans and cats are omnivores. And that is not true. Dogs are scavenging carnivores and up until hundred years ago, they oftentimes caught and killed their food. And even farm dogs today will still, if they find a litter of baby bunnies, they're going to eat every single one of them, like a little Tootsie Roll. They're just going to eat them. Kitties, if allowed to hunt mice, will still hunt mice. Barn cats still very efficiently consume, catch their own food on a regular basis. Dogs and cats physiology has not evolved in the last hundred years to eat a bunch of highly processed refined carbs and oils. They just haven't. So when we put metabolically stressful foods into physiology that was never meant to process this, there are serious metabolic consequences. And that is exactly what we're seeing in terms of degenerative disease today.
0: Excellent, so the practical question becomes now that we have this understanding and grounding that we need to essentially replicate what we're doing to improve our life and health span, uh into with the animals and i just wanted to before i go to the question i had to, <laughs> to highlight one of the variables you review and point out that animals do not run marathons animals do not do weight training but what they're they do is they move all day long if they're allowed or given the opportunity to and it's the movement that probably is one of the most important parts of the equation and if you had limited time For exercise, I mean, probably the highest priority is to get the movement in, like to walk an ideally an hour and a half a day. I mean, that's probably what you're required to do to optimize the expression of your genetics. Uh, So I would just highlight that. And if you have time over, it's definitely do resistance training because sarcopenia and frailty is a big issue as you age. You do not want to wind up there. So uh, that's just my tangent. But the question was, can you help us understand how to identify or construct a species appropriate diet for our pet companion.
1: I I can certainly do that. But first, I do want to thank you for bringing up exercise because Dr. Mercola, there is not, I have, some people have reached out after Forever Dog Book and said, listen, I agree with everything. I am on a very restricted budget. I can barely afford food for myself, or I am getting food from the food bank for Mm -hmm. myself. Sure help me take the best care of my dog on an incredible on a shoestring budget mm-hmm. so f- so thank you for highlighting the importance of exercise because there are so many things we can do for free Mm -hmm. that dramatically extend the health and lifespan of our animals that we don't take advantage of. So for people that are not on a budget, oftentimes they have uh, this beautiful two acre fenced in backyard. So when I say to my clients, Hey, how, how many miles are you doing? Heart thumping, aerobic muscle building, endurance, tongue out, panting, good, really good anaerobic exercise with your dog a day. Their response is, I have a fenced in backyard with a doggy door. Well, that's a little bit like people who have pools that never get in them. That's great that you have a tool and a resource for exercise, but unless you are actually doing the exercise, it doesn't matter. Most dogs that have fenced in backyard, unless they are fence runners, Mm -hmm. they typically lay around their backyard and they are not getting exercise that they need. We we come home exhausted. We're tired at night. We don't really feel like helping our dogs who've been stuck in the house all day, move their bodies. But I do believe it is our ethical and moral obligation to give them the opportunity to do that for two reasons. Dogs are wired as athletes, Joe, even the tiniest Chihuahua. A lot of people just say, Oh, you know, I just carry my dog everywhere. And the exercise is going up and down the stairs in the house. All animals need daily aerobic exercise. They need to be outside. They need to have morning sun hit their retinas to be able to secrete adequate biologic hormones. They need to go for a walk at night to be able to secrete adequate melatonin. Dogs need to be outside and ground themselves and sniff to be able to take in their environment. So we do have an obligation to exercise our dogs. And really, unless your dog has a physiologic injury or can't, You really can't, you need to pace the exercise. And if your dog is out of shape, of course, you want to make sure that you are getting your dog back into shape slowly. However, daily aerobic exercise is the best longevity gift you could ever give your dog and it's free. So thank you for touching on exercise. Yeah, and you exercise. don't have to
0: run. You can just walk.
1: Just walk. Yeah, that's yeah, all. Yes. In fact, you you're, you can walk. And if you can walk uphill for dogs, it helps shift their weight around. You can walk on and off curbs. There's a bunch of things. You don't have to run. Of course, walking and allowing your dog the opportunity to walk with you on a daily basis is the best gift for both of your bodies. It's really, and because humans don't do it for themselves, they deny the opportunity and actually the requirement, they they deny their dogs that. And what we tend to do then is replace it with food. We get home. We're too tired to walk our dog around the block and around the block is not sufficient. Mm -hmm. And we tend to say, I feel guilty. So I'm going to feed you instead. So now we have this growing obesity issue about 60% of dogs the food, in the yeah. US, that's right, are overweight, and we're treating them with high starch, highly refined, high glycemic, no nutrient value, empty calories, oftentimes how we're treating our, our own bodies. So when we talk about species appropriateness, it's such a good question when it
0: comes to food, because- oh, wait, Before we go there, let me just top this off, uh, because there's a recent studies you may not be aware of, at least in the human literature, that show that moderate- Moderate, not high intensity physical activity is has a more profound impact on longevity than the high intensity. And, and actually, the high intensity after a certain period is counterproductive. Yes, actually, yes. starts becoming negative. So that what that means is simple walking is like the foundation that you're going to get the absolute most return on the investment of your time uh, for you and your pet. So, you know, but but break it up, go up curbs and, you know, do these other things and uphill yep. and stuff. But, yep. but that, so I just wanted to reinforce such a basic free thing to do.
1: Free. And I think that that and Joe, I, when it comes to the animal world, uh, this is a little question for you. Uh, what do you think is the number one reason animals end up at animal shelters in the U.S.? Hands down. What's the what's the glaring overwhelming? Is mm. it that people can't afford them? Is that people are moving? Is it divorce? Why do why are animals recycled to shelters?
0: It's a good question. I, I really don't know. I mean, I haven't had a companion pet for decades, and it's not something I've researched. But I mean, probably uh, some psychological issues that they just. Yes. I would, yes, they're they're just not cooperative in the home for whatever reason because they're not getting what their requirements are to optimize them neurologically and, and psychologically. You you are
1: full of common sense. The number one reason dogs are dumped at shelters are behavior behavior problems, okay. and the level of anxiety in dogs Joe mirrors the level of anxiety. One study, one two thousand nineteen study uh, out of Europe said that about. In their research group, in their cohort, about 80% of humans had some component of anxiety and 80% of dogs in their study. So dogs' anxiety and stress levels not only mirrors that of the owner in the home, but if dogs are kept in crates all day or not given the opportunity to put their joints through natural range of motion, not given the opportunity to smell and take in their environment, then, then there is... Physical stress because the body's losing muscle tone, muscle mass, and they're starting to shrink, which is going to predispose animals to injuries. ACL tears are the number one thing that we see in veterinary medicine, partly nutritional and partly lack of exercise. So we don't have strong resilient tendons in our animals. We don't have amazing muscle tone in our dogs or cats. We they are overfat and under muscled and they are malnourished. Malnourished in the sense that we are trying to in the, as a pet food industry they're trying to convince you that we don't need meat protein anymore to be fed to cats or dogs that they that they can get by with vegan formulas that have all the added amino acids into the food that dogs and cats require. And they're putting together this blend of the scientific formulation of all the amino acids, all the synthetic vitamins, all the minerals. They extrude it at high temperatures. They spray a palatant on the outside or the animals would never eat it. And then it goes, you know, it has a two-year shelf life and it sits on a warehouse until you buy it. And that's where we're at when it comes to trying to convince pet parents, that that's nourishing food. And because it's vegetarian or vegan, it's good for the environment. So we're in the exact same situation with human food propaganda and pet food propaganda. And it's wildly frustrating, Joe, dogs and cats don't have a carb requirement. They don't need any starch, none. So if we're going to put together a species-appropriate but, diet but, for dogs and cats. Let me
0: stop there for a moment for a respectful dialogue. The, uh, the humans are the same. They don't have to eat carbs, but that doesn't mean it's optimal for longevity and health. Uh, because if you don't eat carbs, your body can make it through gluconeogenesis, but that's usually catalyzed by cortisol, which increases stress, which we know chronic stress is definitely not good for your health. So, you know, I have not studied pet uh, metabolic... Uh, biology, but I would suspect that they uh, that maybe that's not ideal. They don't need it to survive, but maybe some is useful to optimize their health.
1: There again, brilliant with on the common sense because Joe just feeding animal meat bone organ, which means you're trying to replicate their evolutionary diet. You're trying to replicate prey. Mm-hmm. Research has shown that the microbiome crashes. So you are spot on. But here's the difference between trying to teach clients and you're trying to teach your human patients the difference between good carbs and bad carbs. Dogs and cats don't have a starch requirement, but they do have a fiber requirement. They Mm -hmm. need a lot of low glycemic roughage, not a lot, but they need more than you would think. Dogs are out nibbling grasses in the wild. They will self-forage. When we were at Bobby's, the oh, videotaping him he spent about Bobby, 3 just hours a, a day I forgot Bobby Bo- is a 31-year-old he's yeah. he's a 31-year-old dog who still Some people might be thinking about Bobby
0: well. Kennedy you know who yeah
1: is? yeah yeah no Bob, Bobby <laughs> Bobby the oldest dog in the world spends several hours a day foraging greens and when he is foraging from the garden he's eating weeds he's eating herbs he's self-selecting the plants that his that he needs his owners have allowed him to do that his whole life. I do believe that that's one of the reasons that he has had an exceptionally long life is that his microbiome has been so well diversified. He has not undergone antibiotic abuse. He has not been put on an ultra processed diet that has all of these ales and ages that totally demo- d- demolish his organ systems. He He's never He's been on some cooked food, but it's freshly cooked food. There's a lot of moisture included with that food and he's allowed to forage. And I think that that combination of fresher foods, high glycemic roughage, fresh lean meats that uh, are human grade in the sense that they would pass inspection. We're not sweeping the slaughterhouse floor or giving abscesses or tumors or pieces and parts or diseased meats, which is what goes into pet food now. None of that is occurring when you are knitting together a biologically appropriate diet with the goal of intentionally creating longevity. You're picking healthy, lean pastured meats. You're picking uh, low glycemic, unrefined fresh fruits and vegetables that have not been contaminated with pesticides. Uh, 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 And you're also then making sure that you are following a nutritionally complete recipe that allows you to make sure that you have the micronutrients necessary for health and longevity. That's one of the reasons I do like you, uh, you allowed me to create uh, a meal mix, meal mix for dogs, which allows guardians to take veggies and meat and then meal mix. And it creates a homemade nutritionally complete and balanced meal. And I love that because it's really, it was really the first product on the market that made homemade feeding Accessible, affordable, and most importantly for veterinarians, nutritionally complete. And so, meal mix for dogs has been a real blessing to the pet community how, because it's yep. on
0: the it's on the website too, right? It is, and uh, you can get there, you, which is pets.mercola.com, I think. And there's a shop. You just go there and yep. type it in. But is is that just type in meal mix?
1: Yep, meal okay. mix for you can also go well, to mealmixfordogs.com.
0: Okay, so the other thing that I wanted you to go into on that is. We wanted to do that for a long time, but this is a huge but, or however, is that there are regulatory hurdles that are intentionally put in place to inhibit competition, to provide a healthy food for pets so that they literally are steered and really only have one choice, which is to buy the food, the food that's going to generate the industry profits and create premature demise of your companion pet. So can you describe those regulatory hurdles that had to be overcome before we were allowed to offer this for sale.
1: Well, the the regulatory hurdles that are in the pet food industry, it wasn't that it that that AFCO, the American Association of Feed Control Officials, which is a private organization that sets the parameters for minimum nutrient requirements for dogs and cats in the US. They don't have any enforcement uh you know they the capabilities they're not enforcing anything, but they do set these minimum nutrient requirements the frustration about afco is that afco and fda work in partnership to set what these minimum nutritional requirements are which is which is one conversation a different conversation is that the ingredients that go into pet foods have to be approved by afco and that if you are a big company and you have a leftover rendered byproduct that it can be peanut hulls or it can be whatever leftover commodity from the human food industry that a byproduct that you want to sell. These byproducts are recycled into pet food and they have annual private meetings to approve ingredients. And probably the biggest frustration for me, and not only as a pet parent, but as a veterinarian, is that you have to buy this expensive. AFCO handbook from AFCO. You have to join AFCO, and and if you want to attend this private meeting, you have to pay to be a member in order to attend. And then only the big ultra-processed pet food manufacturers really have a seat at the communication table about what ingredients get approved and why. So it's this bureaucratic red tape that's quite frustrating, certainly to deal with, especially for all of these small, independent, fresh, human-grade pet food companies that are springing up. Joe, the fastest growing segment of the pet food industry is this fresher segment because people are starting to wake up and realize, oh my gosh, I, I, I don't want to be feeding my pet this ultra processed, terrible, rendered, not human approved, uh, uh, not human grade approved ingredient, full of toxic byproducts. I don't want to feed that to my dog or cat anymore. So passionate people are starting to produce better foods. And it's giving the ultra processed feed grade big boys who have controlled the market 50 years. It's giving them a run for their money. The problem is the, the politics of AFCO can make it very, very difficult for instance, to find out if your food is human grade or not. They have intentionally made the labels on pet food very um, difficult to be able to interpret correctly. When you see a char grilled steak on your pet food bag, that is not what's in the product. It's totally false marketing. You may see a little handful of blueberries or cranberries, and you think, oh, you know what? I have a dog that has recurrent urinary tract infections. I see cranberries, or it might say with cranberries on the label, and you flip it over. They can have 0.02% cranberry pomace extract powder, a byproduct of the human cranberry industry, in that food, and then label it as with cranberries for urinary health. That's false marketing. But you have to know enough to be able to,
0: yeah. I I would say deceptive. Deceptive and fraudulent. Yeah.
1: Very, very, very deceptive. Now, pet parents that have been educated about these topics understand it. However, my heartbreak is all of the either brand new pet parents who don't know enough to make good decisions or people that have said, you know what? I'm relying on my veterinarian. I'm abdicating my animal's health to my vet and my vet's going to make all the decisions for me. And that those two issues are where where regrets can come in. I do believe if we have two-legged human kids or if we are caring for animals, those are creatures that can't make decision, can't make good decisions about their health and the health of their environment on their own. They have to have a guardian step in and make wise decisions. How do you know you're making wise decisions? You educate yourself. How do you educate yourself? You do enough reading and enough um, of of you knowing in your heart that you trust the company you're feeding. That you like the raw materials going into your pet food, you can call customer service. You can ask them, hey, where did you source your meat from? Are you human grade? What country of origin are your veggies from? You can call and ask those questions. And transparent human-grade pet food companies are so fired up that you do because they can carry on a conversation that allows them to express where the raw materials for their pet food comes from, who's processing it. They're happy to answer those questions. If you were to call the top pet food manufacturers at big box stores, or most food sold at, let's say, PetSmart, Petco all the grocery store foods, you call them and ask them country of origin or sourcing or for third-party testing, they'll, they won't they will even return the email. So I do believe it's up to us to know in our hearts that to not be bamboozled, we have to know in our hearts, we're making the right decision. And that means you have to learn enough to not have regrets.
0: Absolutely. Well, it's really good information that uh, people well, need to have to be inspired and understand what's going on so that they can be proactive. And pre- prevention, as we know, is so much more exponentially oh. effective than, than treatment. And it's, and it's you know, taking care of pests can be very, very expensive. I have so many friends that you know wind up with thousands, tens of thousands of dollars of bills. Uh, to try to rescue their animals when if all they had done is pay attention to the simple foundational basics, they would have never had these problems. They would have been far healthier and died a a natural death, you know, maybe 30 years old, like Bobby. So, you know, thank you.
1: Well, thank you, Joe, first of all, for bringing up costs. You have to remember that human, the human medical system has insurance. So human medical costs and animal medical costs are exactly identical. When you take an x-ray, when I take an x-ray, we bought the exact same x-ray machine. When you do surgery, I use the exact same brand and type of suture that you did. So the, when we're buying supplies to set up a hospital, it's the exact same supplier, exact same cost, the big difference. And so an MRI is cost is the MRI. The difference is humans have health insurance and, most pet parents don't have health insurance for their animals. So you are literally paying just raw costs. A lot of people say, my veterinarian's trying to gouge me. Honestly, veterinarians are really kind, loving people who truly love animals, who have to spend exorbitant amounts of money to run a human hospital for animals without insurance. It just costs a lot. And in veterinary school, we weren't taught my... Community medicine, my wellness medicine rotation was giving vaccines to puppies and kittens. (laughs) That was the wellness rotation. So when you ask your professors, hey, thanks for teaching me how to treat kidney disease. Thanks for teaching me how to treat heart disease. I know how to do that. What I don't know how to do and what I didn't learn in veterinary school was how to prevent those diseases from occurring. And that's the conversation I am trying to get started with every veterinary school around the world right now is thank you so much. I graduated learning two important things. I learned how to do trauma medicine. So if a dog is hit by a car, I know what to do. I also know how to treat infectious disease. And so if a dog has parvoviral infection, I know what to do. What I didn't learn was how to prevent degenerative lifestyle diseases from occurring. I didn't learn how to prevent kidney disease, heart disease. I didn't learn how to prevent arthritis from occurring. And all of those things are totally possible and doable, but I didn't learn them in veterinary school. So here's my plug for partnering with a functional medicine veterinarian, a holistic veterinarian a proactive wellness veterinarian. The conversation that you need to begin having with your veterinarian is, hey, Dr. Johnson, I love you. My, my mom went to you. My grandma went to you. Our whole family has been to you for three decades. We love your practice. We love your clinic. I'm interested right now in pivoting from a reactive type of medicine where I wait for my animals to get sick and then I come to you devastated and then we make a treatment plan with drugs that treat the symptoms that never address the root cause. That's what we're doing right now. I don't want to do that anymore. I want to begin moving towards preventing disease and degeneration from occurring. And if you don't have the tools and maybe the continued education to do that, I'm going to start adding, kind of like in human medicine, we we add different health and wellness specialists to our team We may have a chiropractor, a nutritionist, a podiatrist, dermatologist. We start adding uh, a massage therapist. We add people to our healthcare team to take care of our own human cartons. And we can do the exact same thing in veterinary medicine. You may need to have an ER veterinarian for middle-of-the-night emergencies. Then you have your general practitioner who's beautiful, and you can go there once a year and do internal blood work to make sure vital organs are functioning great, yes, when it comes to setting up proactive preventive wellness strategies, your veterinarian may be interested in saying, Hey, I'm going to learn more. My next continuing education classes, I'm going to do this. Or you may end up going on over to CIVTEDU.org, which is the College of Integrated Veterinary Therapies, has online classes that pet parents can take, veterinarians can take, but there's also a directory. So if you would like to do a consultation with a proactive wellness vet, to get a proactive wellness strategy or protocol for your dog or cat that's possible as well. And that's probably the very best thing you can do. If you don't know quite where to go and your vet doesn't either, you can bring someone onto your pet's healthcare team to get the answers you need.
0: Wow. That's an unexpected bonus. I was not, did not know that was a resource. So thank you for sharing that. Uh, Perhaps we can uh, put the cherry on the cake or the icing on the cake might be better uh, metaphor. And I, I I don't know what's a more popular pet—it's cats or dogs. It would just to be a guess. Uh, maybe it's cats. I think I don't know. Is, there, there, cat, the, cat, there are more
1: cats. There are more cats in U.S. households than dogs. Kitty. There are more cats. Okay. Right.
0: So, what, cat. so I so I believe that kidney disease. It, well, the, the, the the intention of the question is for cats and dogs. Can you name the one or two, maybe even three, most common chronic degenerative diseases? and what we can do easily and simply to be proactive and prevent those diseases.
1: Um, So I am right there with you that it's when it comes to kidney disease, when it comes to heart disease, when it comes to heart disease, we have to be thinking about amino acid deficiency and not amino acid deficiency from corn and wheat and rice, amino acid deficiency from not having enough clean, fresh Whole meat, which is a dog and cat's evolutionary God given diet, there is not enough amino acids to maintain healthy organ structure, including heart and kidney well being. So, one of the things I would encourage all of your listeners or readers that have pets to do is look at the category of food that they're feeding. Let's say right now they're feeding extruded dry food, there's this spectrum of from raw food. And so let's just, there's, and just so your listeners and readers know, raw means unadulterated raw meat plus ground up veggies with appropriate sources of vitamins and minerals that's put together to mean a nutritionally complete and balanced diet. There's also pet food companies that are now using high pressure pasteurization. And so if you're like, ooh, I'm nervous about the bacteria in raw meat, you can actually buy basically pasteurized raw food diets, which means it's bacteria free. So if people are, if if the hangup for raw food diets is bacteria, know that there's a pasteurized option that literally makes it bacteria free. The other thing I just want to mention is that with the Food Safety Modernization Act that was passed, pet foods are included in that. So every single bag of fresher food, raw food diets that you purchase in the U.S., have a zero tolerance policy for potentially pathogenic bacteria. That means they have to have no E. coli, no salmonella. So the raw foods that you're buying have to demonstrate to be salmonella freeze if that's a concern for you. So commercially available raw food diets are in the unadulterated raw fresh food category. That's the best category of pet foods you could feed as long as they are well-formulated, meaning you can call the company and say, hey, I want a complete nutritional analysis to make sure that you're not guessing at a recipe good raw food companies are happy to provide that. Then there's gently cooked foods and freeze dried foods, which are take all of this good organic, fresh raw meats, and then either freeze dry them quickly or gently cook them and then freeze them. That's, that would be second best. That's one adulteration step. Then there's baked or actually dehydrated right there in the middle and dehydrated pet foods range from really great. If it's just dehydrated, raw meat, wonderful to actually really high carb starchy, depending on the brand. So dehydrated pet foods are one of the hardest categories to discern because you have to do your research about, did they start with all raw meat-based or did they start with a bunch of corn, wheat, and rice and peas? So you need to flip over the label make some phone calls, send an email and discern the raw materials that dehydrated pet foods came from, but they're still less heat treated then dry. So what I want pet parents to do is to look at where they're at on the spectrum from fresh, raw feeding, r- 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 raw foods to gently cooked, freeze-dried, dehydrated, air-dried, baked, and extruded. And then what can they do to start moving pet food categories to fresher, less processed styles of pet foods? That's step number one. If people say, I can't, then I would say, if you've got to continue feeding all extruded, ultra processed fast food to your dog or cat, then start thinking about how you can occasionally add in maybe one or two of the 14 meals you feed your pets during the week. Could you swap in one or two homemade nutritionally complete meals, which are fresher foods? Could you swap out four meals of a homemade diet? Could you do a commercially available raw or fresh food in the morning and a dry food at night? How could you incrementally and stepwise go from all ultra processed calories to fewer and fewer ultra processed calories over the course of 14 meals in a week. That would be my first recommendation. Second is adding some moisture into the food. Dogs and cats were never meant to eat an entirely dehydrated, desiccated food their whole lives. And for cats, especially Dr. Mercola, that plays into kidney disease, terrible quality protein, like rendered not human improved, USDA inspected, or failed meats that are dehydrated result in chronic kidney stress for cats. So get your cats and dogs onto human grade, USDA inspected, and past meats that have not been dehydrated or extruded. And that's going to help preserve kidney well being and then add in those fresh food toppers that contain all the bioactives and polyphenols that contain all of the enzymes that have not been processed. That means the tops and bottoms of carrots. That means the tops and bottoms of your sap and peas, feed those to your dogs. Everything that you're cutting off of your fresh fruits and veggies, all those dented blueberries that you're like, Ooh, they're too soft for me. Feed them to your dogs that's the daily ongoing source of table food or table scraps that you can share with your animals that provide these potent polyphenols and bioactives that are necessary for the rebuilding and the maintenance to prevent degeneration as animals go through life. So share your fresh foods. The only foods that you will not be sharing with your dogs and cats are onions. So no chives, chives, leeks, onions, none of those no chocolate obviously and no raisins no, well, why, or grapes
0: why no chocolate and and uh, so in
1: so chocolate obviously. so chocolate contains a product theobromine a byproduct that dogs and cats bodies can't break down so it just oh, it yeah. just yeah, isn't it interesting? Their liver metabolism of theobromine doesn't happen, and theosulfates in in the onion family can at high quantities can call can cause what's called Heinz body anemia. There again, they lack the enzyme
0: mm-hmm. to
1: break down theosulfate from onion family. So, is that avoid... true for most
0: most pets? Are just dogs?
1: Great, great question. Dogs and ca- this, and actually, this is this is a whole different podcast. Dogs and cats, um, and actually, I don't know about other species, but. Other animals, it appears, can eat some onions with less potential Heinz body anemia than dogs and cats. Raw onion, cooking onions dramatically reduces the likelihood of any kind of toxicosis. Dogs and humans co evolved. So I do think historically, evolutionarily, dogs probably ate a lot of cooked onions, but raw onions. And there is no ifs, ands, or buts, and no veterinarian will argue this. Raw onions fed in significant enough quantities can create problems for dogs and cats. So I just, across the board, recommend okay. not Good. feeding onions. Yet. Well,
0: excellent. And, yeah.
1: But other than, that, other than that, when you open your fridge, if you've got food that's going bad, I recommend never throwing out any fresh fruit or veggie. Just don't do it. If it starts to go soft or weird, whiz it up, chop it up, throw it in some ice cube trays and pop it out. when you you want a fresh food topper and feed it to your dog or cat. One of the best ways that you can recycle your human foods, your fresh living whole foods that you spent good money on, don't ever throw them out, recycle them into your dog's bowl. All
0: right, I, I want to continue the expansion, expanded answers to my initial question, but I want to take a tangent first. Since you're a small animal vet and I don't have any cats or dogs, I have nine chickens and four geese now. For white geese, which is pretty interesting, and I feed them. I don't feed them commercial. The, you know, these animals only have one stomach. They don't have multiple hydro- hydrogenation chambers where they can saturate uh, fats that that are her con- foods that contain polyunsaturated fats, such as uh, grains. You know, that are loaded with linoleic acid, and almost all commercial organic commercial feed for these pets or these animals are loaded with that. So as a result, that's why chickens really shouldn't be consumed as a meat. I know you're a, a, a vegetarian, so that's not an issue for you, but I don't think anyone should be eating chickens uh, because you can't, unless you're raising them yourself, but there's going to be high in linoleic acid, but even the chicken eggs would be problematic. So uh, I feed them the, by I, I prepare the food for them, somewhat similar, and I, I just wanted to get your feedback on it. So I'm giving them field peas as the primary protein. I soak like a pound and a half for them in water for like six hours. And then I rinse it for two days. So it's essentially sprouted field peas. And then I yep. cook, it, cook it in a pressure uh, pressure pot, uh, pressure cooker, sorry. And it's called Instant Pot. And also use uh, some saturated fat, like beef tallow and coconut oil. And uh, then supplement it with nutrients, like liver, dehydrated liver powder that we sell for humans. So I give them that. And some other minerals and calcium. Do you
1: give them bugs?
0: No. Well, I'm on two acres, so the, the, and they're free range all day, so okay. they just get the bugs. Because, I was but, giving them. I was giving them mealworms, but then I realized that is not a good idea, even though that they, they love them. Almost the, the the standards for raising mealworms are just atrocious. Yes. They're just well, ex- terrible yes. food. It's, it's yes, crazy and I facts. agree with
1: you. I would say black soldier fly larvae. If I mean, if you're yeah. going to if you're going to buy bugs by black soldier fly larva born, bred and raised in the U S not mealworms imported from other countries. Yeah. Yeah. that they, so have been ra- get- irradiated. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good. Yeah, to know. Don't, I, don't it, do that. That's,
0: that's why I asked. So, yeah. Uh, and then I give them, uh, barley too. Good. Th- as a snack and, uh, then and they fresh po- fruits po-
1: and then oh, you, yeah. Do you oh, throw yeah, all your, yes, I, and- I go,
0: I, yeah, that, that's exactly what the reason I, that, your comment catalyzed this question is that yes, I don't have good dogs or cats. So I give all the food that I don't eat. I give it to yes, them. Yes.
1: There you go. And yeah, that's especially the Joe, fruits;
0: They love the fruits.
1: And Joe, that is, that's what's creating that gut microbiome diversity. That is the number one thing. When we asked Dr. Tim Spector, one of the most hundred scientists cited scientists in the world, he's a microbiologist out of King's college. We asked him what's the number. What, if you could pick one, health and longevity tip. We ask this to all of the top scientists. Dr. Tim Spector said, diversify your dog's microbiome, diversify your chicken's microbiome, feed as many different foods and fiber sources as you can think of to diversify their microbiome. Because 70% of your chickens and dogs and cats immune systems lie in along the GI tract. So the more resilient and strong their gut is, the more resilient and strong their immune system is. So you recycling all of your human leftover, as long as it's minimally processed, which yes. it is, of course, in your diet, I know exactly what you eat, then they're getting the best thing you're doing is you're giving them something different every day. No animal is meant to eat the exact same food every day. That creates a mono gut. That creates lack of diversifications colonies collapse you end up with small intestinal bacterial overgrowth because you're just nourishing one species so it's the nutritional diversity that you are giving your chicken that's allowing along with their ability to self-forage in your two acres that is going to hopefully create exceptional longevity
0: yeah and healthy food too i mean uh, one of the reasons i think it's a great um i guess survival would be the survival strategy you know with the who knows what the next crisis is going to be and what type of challenges we're going to do with respect to supply chain? So, uh, and uh, chicken and eggs are really good to have. They're really, they're, you know, in a, in a situation. I mean, we had a crisis of chicken eggs not too long ago. Yeah, ago, yeah, we ago. sure did. We so, sure did. And, you know, and listen,
1: were... sharing, if you had a dog, Joe, sharing your chicken eggs, that's the other way that you could radically improve uh, dry food. Just, mm-hmm. Crack an egg on that food. That's a beautiful way to give amino acids to dogs and cats that are probably amino. If they're eating ultra processed dry food, they are amino acid deficient. So an egg is a great topper. So that is that is sharing eggs. If you happen to have chicken, sharing eggs with your dogs or cats is a brilliant strategy as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. And you can, I mean, obviously you can buy the eggs yourself. The problem is, is that each egg is, even if they're organic free range and they're fed organic chicken feed, is full of linoleic acid so they're they have a about a gram or more each egg so it adds up over time and you have to be careful in my diet that is the number one source of my linoleic acid is for my chicken eggs and even i feed them really low linoleic acid so uh the commercials eggs are just totally a challenge i guess but anyway uh i wanted to continue with the um the most common diseases, you gave us the the antidote for all of them, I guess, with the foods, and thank you for those tips, but maybe you, is there any other, you, could you name the most common diseases in, in cats and dogs, Uh and, you know, if there's any other tips other than food and exercise that you might recommend?
1: So when it comes to degenerative diseases, we're talking mm-hmm. when it you know, across the board, there are every breed has some breed predispositions that certain, right. if you have purebred dogs, certain breed predispositions pop up both for dogs and cats. When it comes to degenerative diseases, the three that plague dogs are very similar to the three that plague humans, right? Obesity,
0: mm. cancer,
1: and type two diabetes or lifestyle induced diabetes are very high so, as so cancer as before arthritis. heart
0: cancer, cancer, before. Yes. Heart disease.
1: Dogs have way more cancer than heart disease and mm-hmm. way more cancer than heart disease. Now heart disease is up there, but heart disease in animals is nutritionally induced in my opinion. Could, can there be genetic anomalies and genetic resistance? Sure. Mm-hmm. For instance, Dobermans and Cavalier King Charles Spaniels, they have a genetic predisposition for having heart issues, which is why when you I see a little Doberman or someone says, Hey, I just rescued a Cavalier. I'm like, all right, let's get them on some wholly absorbable, fresh meat-based diet. Let's add in some ubiquinol. Let's make sure that that taurine content's there. Let's make sure that we have these animals on carnis- carnitine and carnosine. There's some great things you can do to prevent genetics from expressing themselves. Heart disease is an issue, but obesity, first and mm-hmm. foremost, just like humans, we are struggling with both dog and cat obesity at epidemic levels. Cancer is right up there as well, followed by uh, organ degeneration. That includes liver disease, heart disease, kidney disease. But Joe, when it comes to the number, the top like five reasons dogs and cats go to the veterinarian. hmm Chronic gut issues, so IBS, Mm. IBD, chronic vomiting, chronic diarrhea, all microbiome related, right? So gut issues take dogs to the veterinarian as one of the top reasons, microbiome imbalance from environment, but primarily diet, of course. Then we also have allergies. So on the immune spectrum, you know this, we have immune failure, cancer, and then we have autoimmune disease, which also plagues dogs and cats. Over here on the hyperactive side of things, we have allergic conditions, and dogs and cats both. I would venture to use the word epidemic as well. We have an epidemic of food-based allergies because of inappropriate foods that are fed in perpetuity that are not appropriate for the species. And we have out of the leaky gut microbiome dysfunction, then we have a, a secondary environmental allergies that plague primarily dogs. So between allergies for the chronic veterinary visits and IBD. IBS, irritable bowel, chronic GI issues, dogs and cats are at the veterinarian for a lot of symptoms Mm -hmm. and our bodies give us symptoms. Thankfully. Mm -hmm. especially for dogs and cats as an SOS sign. Mm -hmm. So if our dogs and cats have any symptoms, if they are shedding excessively, something to stop to think about. If they have bad breath, something to stop and think about. If they have intermittent constipation and diarrhea, if your cat pukes twice a week, that's not okay. These are their bodies saying, I'm having a problem here. And then it's up to us to be able to say, I'm not going to panic. I'm going to identify root causes. And if I don't have enough information to be able to go down the path of my veterinarian, I'm going to partner with a proactive wellness veterinarian who can, and I'm going to start putting into place a system of first diagnostics. Let's find out why my animal has these symptoms. And then let's start with non-toxic protocols to heal and restore the underlying disease or damaged tissue to get my animal's body back on track. That's kind of the logical progression of what pet parents can do to stop treating the symptoms of potential degenerative disease and start getting to the root causes of symptoms that are there months to years before the body breaks.
0: Well, that is just beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. It's just exactly what I was looking for. And it's it just amazes me how many parallels there are with the pets and humans. And my guess is that the primary contributor for most of those issues are, are the introduction of seed oils, which happened in humans in about the 1870s and really started to grow quite dramatically at the turn of the ni- the 20th century, early 1900s. Uh, so I'm assuming, I have not done a deep dive on this, but you would know that the, probably one of the biggest and most pernicious components of the ultra-pasteurized food that these pets are eating are seed oils, because it's a, it's a totally cheap form of calories, widely accepted and adopted by the authorities as being useful and, and essential when it isn't. Um,
1: hey, hey i'm just gonna have you guess guess what the omega story. six to three ratio oh probably guess, 20 guess to
0: th- 20 to 30 to one 30 30 to yeah. one i was not too far off <laughs> i was 20 was giving him a good you know and do you know what it should be for animals it should be two to one two to yeah two to four definitely below five
1: yeah yes I mean th- I and I'll take 3 and, to 1 I'll I ex- I was just the saying, I'll, I'll even take 5 to 1 for commercial actually,
0: fresh food diets the ratio I was actually confusing your question of the ratio with the percentage of fat I was thinking the percentage of omega 6 might be 30% of the total calories
1: uh I I can't tell you about percent of total calories but the ratio the ratio, ratio. there are no there's no okay. DHA and EPA in pet food I mean there's very very little because it oxidizes it goes, it oh. oxidizes too quickly. So instead, they put LA and ALA in that also oxidizes. I mean, mm-hmm. we're we're feeding animals rancid omega-6 fats. That's really what we're feeding. And that creates a whole cascade of chronic inflammation that animals have to walk around with the majority of their lives. That chronic ungrowing, uh, ongoing simmering inflammation is the root of the beginning of their bodies not only being uncomfortable. And creating symptoms, but it's the root of the beginning of cellular degeneration, which leads to them, mm-hmm. uh, structural degeneration, which leads to organ degeneration, which over time, eventually those organ enzymes pop on blood work and veterinarians say, "Hmm, I wonder why you have a little liver enzyme elevation. Well, <laughs> knitting, you know, I wonder why the, I wonder why the SDMA or the BUN is elevated. You know, I wonder, I wonder why these low simmering inflammatory conditions are present throughout the body. Well, certainly we have to think about food and the big difference, Dr. Mercola between the patients you see and the patients I see really is my patients can't talk. So we have to be extra vigilant and doing all we can as empowered, proactive guardians for making wise decisions. Your patients, your patients can say, I feel like crap. I'm fatigued. I have my I've got, I get migraines, my head is fuzzy. I have, I, I can't think straight. Our animals can't tell us how they feel. And many dogs and cats walk around feeling horrible in their bodies, but they're blessed, beautiful personalities. You have to be really keyed in because that's how magnificent animals are. They're so happy to see you. They'll Three-legged lame carry their leg that isn't feeling well because they're just so happy to see you. They can be a ball of itching, bloody, allergic, hot mess, and they're still fired up to see you. So they're not going to complain about their ongoing degenerative, physical, miserable state because animals don't do that. And because they don't complain, it's oftentimes easy to overlook those initial stages of degenerative disease. So being a really astute pet parent is something that we need to practice as well.
0: All right. Well, this is absolutely great advice, Uh, much better than I ever anticipated it would be, but not surprised at all. So uh, thank you for sharing all these incredible resources. But you've also written a book, which you alluded to earlier, and uh, I guess it was a bestseller too. So congratulations on that. I should they I should have had you them. on for the book. I didn't. wasn't in the loop. So, but tell us the name of the book and where they can get it.
1: So I am very proud of the Forever Dog. It did hit number one on New York Times bestseller. It was the first dog health
0: book. Wait, wait, to wait! Ever
1: hit number did, one?
0: Didn't they know that you were associated with Mercola.com? That it can't <laughs> be number one if it's if they have any association uh, with me. It's you, like you know, forbidden by law.
1: Do you know what's wonderful is that as a consultant to beautiful companies like yours, here's the beautiful part about being an independent consultant I get to say and do whatever my heart tells me to say and do and as a consultant to you and other companies that are amazing as an independent consultant i'm a free agent veterinarian and that (laughs) i think has allowed uh me to be able to say and do things that potentially well actually that you would not be able to say and do you are not a free agent and i am (laughs) so it did hit number one and it's now published in 18 languages wow that's fantastic The forever dog at foreverdog.com yeah
0: All right. Well, that's a good place to get it. So congratulations on that and all you do and continue to do and helping enlighten people and with pretty actually simple strategies, maybe not easy to implement, but certainly simple and relatively inexpensive and certainly absolutely inexpensive in the long run, because if you fail to do these things, you're going to pay the price in grief because your pet died prematurely or in, in veterinary bills. So, you know, I just, I'm a big believer in prevention. So I really thank you for helping us walk through that. And uh, really, it's just extraordinary to find how many similarities there are between human and animal health and nutrition.
1: Yeah, it is where we. Uh, Our animals are a product of our environment. And if we have a clean and healthy environment, our animals reap the benefits of that. If we eat clean and healthy foods, oftentimes as pet parents, we extend that to include our four-legged family members. And I think if people are overwhelmed, if people listen to this interview, Dr. Mercola, and they feel overwhelmed or they're like, oh my gosh, I am not doing these things. I'm doing these things for my human family. I'm not doing them for my pets. Don't panic. Take a deep breath and you can make one minor change one bite of food at a time you can make minor but significant changes in your dog and cat's well-being by by recognizing that you don't have to change everything this red hot minute but you can begin working towards improving the health and the immediate environment that your dog and cat's dna is in to over time ultimately shift the trajectory from a life of probable degeneration to a life of prevention and making the body resilient and strong through your intentional actions. So the key is to not be overwhelmed. The key is to be empowered. Thank you. Thank you for hosting me.
0: You're welcome. Well, thanks for everything you're doing. Glad to connect again and you keep up doing the good work. And uh, you'll have to send me the, uh, the link to get those fantastic photographs. I will. <laughs> we'll put it in the article too in case anyone yeah, else is interested. Yeah.
1: Sounds good. Okay, right, my let's... friend. Great right, to take... see you. All right. Take care. Take care. Bye.